from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome, everyone, to another episode. We're happy to be with you. And Wendy, I'm happy to be with you. Thanks, my love. Just a, not even a half an hour ago. I had a really delightful experience. What was that? <laughs> now you're laughing. It was it I'm laughing cuz it was it was funny that I was taking such delight in you sharing a pet peeve. Oh yes, I was. <laughs> but I I I I took such delight because this pet peeve was revealing your person. I love the expression even pet peeve like we have a peeve is something that bugs us and a pet peeve is like something we kind of like like pet (laughs) (laughs) we kind of we we kind of hold it close and we (laughs) pet it like a soft kitten or something a pet peeve um share share with (laughs) share with the listeners share with the listeners your pet peeve we're we're we're, you're about to start homeschooling we have two yeah. Left out of our five who are still being homeschooled. Right. Isaac is 16, uh, soon to be 17, and Grace just turned 15 last week. Mm-hmm. So we have a freshman and a sophomore, no, a freshman and a junior right. in high school that you, you're their primary homeschooler. So we're starting school to share your pet peeve. It really made me <laughs> so smile. Our kids are going to a homeschool co op with teachers who have their own assignments and, uh, the main issue at hand is required supplies for the course. So anybody who has kids in school or is in school, you are probably familiar with teachers' supply lists. This is my, unfortunately, it's my pet peeve. I feel bad for any teachers who are listening who are going to be a little upset with me, but oh my word, throughout the years of schooling our children, this dynamic has caused me so much frustration when teachers give a very specific list of things that that students are going to need for their class. And I have really no way of knowing if they truly need it And if they don't have it, they're going to be upset or chastised in the classroom or whether it was just sort of a whim of the teacher that they're not going to use. And you do have some experience here of of a specific thing that you thought was a need that you spent lots of time looking for, finding, digging through. Oh, it has happened many times, actually. And then after the end of the year, they never even used it. They never used it. There was a time when our kids went to a co-op where... Every student had to have a plastic orange folder. Okay, fine. But why not have the school just order a whole case of plastic orange folders? Instead, we have every parent combing the shelves at all the targets looking for where is there a plastic orange folder left in this place? And you're counting the number of your kids and, oh, I found two at this one. Got to go to another place. It's just ridiculous waste of time. It's so frustrating. So I'm I'm in that right now where our kids are taking some classes at this co-op that have some pretty difficult supply lists, and I'm trying to hold it together. It's a little frustrating. So what makes me smile is how, and I think even our listeners are probably hearing just a little bit of your personhood coming through <laughs> in your 
in your pet peeve? Yes. Whenever there's a little thing that just reveals the uniqueness of your person, it uh, tickles me. It tickles you. Tickles. Well, so I was, I was very tickled by I'm it. I'm glad. I, it was therapeutic for me to vent to some of that I, frustration. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, having you <laughs> vent. Like, you don't vent that often. No. I vent quite a bit. <laughs> and when you vent, it's like a special treat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. thanks for that treat, Wendy. Okay. I'm you actually thankful it. to the teachers. <laughs> Who gave the ridiculous list of supplies. Yeah, because it gave me an opportunity to love you. Gosh, thank you. Yes. With that, you want to update us on the Theology of the Body Institute happenings. If you have been listening to this podcast for the last almost year, you have heard me say multiple times, probably to the point that some of you are about to roll your eyes as soon as I say the word, (laughs) cruise, (laughs) we're going to France. And here's the thing. We only have two cabins left. Out of 80 cabins, we're going to have the whole boat. Nice. There are two cabins left. So that could be You could be a single person who comes and takes the cabin all for yourself. You could be a married couple who comes and you have the cabin to yourself. There are only, so it's either going to be two more people who come on their own or four more people come as married couples. Or if you're. Or friend combination. Yeah, friends come. Yeah, friend combination or maybe two priests wanted to come. Whatever. We have two cabins left. That's four people max. And. We really think it's going to be sold out, so this is probably, we're getting down to the wire because we're going at the end of October. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wendy and I are going to be leading this pilgrimage through the teaching of St. Therese, and we're going to be linking it with Theology of the Body. We're going up the Seine River in France, Uh, and if you're thinking, I really, really want to come, I just don't have the money, well, here's what I always say, put it in the womb of the Blessed Mother. And if it's meant to be, if it's God's will, it will happen. We have had instances, this happened just last year when we were on our way. It was like two weeks before we were headed off to, where did I go on pilgrimage last year, Wendy? I can't keep it always straight. Where did I go? It was Spain and Portugal. Oh yeah, Spain and Portugal. Spain and Portugal last year. And two weeks before we were leaving, some woman called us up. She said, I really feel like I'm supposed to come. I don't have the money. And the next day, we got an email from somebody saying, I just feel led to sponsor somebody to go on this pilgrimage. And the two coincided, and that person came, and yeah, we just, we've had stories like that. So, don't think money is an obstacle. If the Lord wants you to come, He can find a way. So, pray about it, think about it, and if you think you're meant to come, sign up. There are only two cabins left. The link is below in the description. We also have a link below with all of our courses coming up. We have some online courses coming up, and uh, you'd have to be on the wait list for Bill Dunahy's in-person course on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. That's in November. That one's sold out. Um, But you could go on the wait list. And there's usually, even if you're on the wait list, there's sometimes good chance that you can get in because there are usually some cancellations. So that's pretty much what's going on in the Institute. I'll say one more thing. Uh, We're about to launch our... Um, tour for the fall of our Made for More events, check out the link below for our live events and see if we're coming to your area. Mm. Very good. Yeah. Are you ready for a question from one of our patrons? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. This is from Catherine. Dear Christopher and Wendy, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith. 
and I've been so blessed by your weekly podcasts. I had a rather difficult conversion, and your show has been a rich source of grace for me on my journey of healing. That's great. My question is something that has been weighing heavily upon my heart. I recently watched the film Sound of Freedom, and it shattered my heart. In my research afterwards, I was shocked to find that the United States is the number one consumer and producer of child sex material, and that this statistic is consistent from year to year. In addition, in many impoverished areas of the world, it's Americans and other Western tourists who are driving the demand for the booming sex tourism industry, which often involves trafficked children. From the view of Theology of the Body, what do you think is contributing to this horrifying reality and the growing perverted demand for children in particular? And why hasn't the church been openly addressing this dire humanitarian issue? Hmm. Catherine, bless you, dear sister. Uh, I saw Sound of Freedom, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago when it came out. And yeah, I was disturbed, terribly disturbed. Sadly, uh, this is a reality in our world. Tragically, this is a reality in our world. And I mean, much could be said that I don't have the time to get into about why this is happening and why isn't the church doing more. Uh, I'll say this. We, this is such a horrific reality. We just don't want to go there. Like, we, we don't even know how to talk about it. Um, there are reasons, you know, in a public forum, like on a Sunday mass during a homily, is it's not, I mean, it could be mentioned in passing, but to go into the details when there are young children present is not appropriate. That's one reason maybe we don't hear about it more. But I think the main reason we're not hearing more about this within the church is because the church's pastors are not equipped. The church's teachers are, are relatively uh, ill-equipped to address these issues. Seminary training, they don't hear about this. Uh, and, and I can say that not just as one who's kind of guessing. Uh, I've done a lot of work in priestly formation over the years. Uh, I've taught in seminaries. I've done priest convocations. I used to teach at the Institute for Priestly Formation. I have my, my finger, um, this, I'm saying this from an, an, an educated place, that seminary formation when it comes to God's plan for human sexuality is inadequate to a woeful extent. Uh, I would even say deplorable extent. Uh, it's getting better here and there. There are signs of hope. But man, we're still in a crisis. We have yet to experience a real injection of John Paul II's theology of the body into the lifeblood of the church. It just hasn't happened yet. So the, the work that we do here at the Theology of the Body Institute is ever more important and ever more needed. If, and I'll say this, even if it's being presented in seminaries, it's kind of usually tucked away in a moral theology class, or maybe they'll get one class about the sacramentality of marriage, and that's where they talk about theology of the body. I don't think I've ever seen any seminary who has re- that has really caught the fire and understood that theology of the body is not just something to tuck away in a moral theology class or in a sacrament of marriage class. It's a lens through which 
to proclaim and explain the whole of the Catholic faith. Now, I'm kind of getting on my soapbox here, and it, it is related to the question. Um, but let me go back. Let me circle back and say this about why I think America is one of the main um, consumers and exporters of this horrific vision of human sexuality that leads to child trafficking. And I was struck by Catherine's question, why in particular children? What is this proclivity to be erotically charged towards children? Remember this principle, the devil doesn't have his own clay, right? You've heard me say this many times if you're a listener of this podcast, and it means that all the enemy can do is twist and distort God's clay and God's clay is very good. God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it is very good. We live in a world so cut off from that good, uh, where that good has been so twisted up. But my point here is to say, even in what is terribly twisted up, and a sexual, erotically charged attraction to children is something horrifically, terribly mm twisted up. But when we understand the nature of evil as the distortion of something good, when we understand that, that sexual attraction is in its very nature as God created it to be, it is a desire for something we lack. And whatever we feel we lack, we will find ourselves attracted to and we will want to take it into ourselves. And I think this horrific perverse attraction, sexual attraction to children, when you read it as a kind of map into the wounds of a culture, uh, uh, read it as a kind of map into the wounds of a person's heart, what we find is a tragically wounded childhood in that person's life. And what that person feels like he lacks, or what that person feels like she lacks, and it's certainly not just a problem of men, what that person lacks is, is a healthy childhood. And the symbol of an innocent child becomes uh, a, a symbol of the innocent childhood that I didn't have. And because I didn't have it and I was meant to have it, I feel this gaping void. I feel this horrific lack in my own life. And that lack can become erotically charged. And I find myself wanting to take into myself almost with a kind of cannibalistic instinct. And, and I think that's an apt metaphor because as I once learned, cannibals will only eat the people they admire. Uh, they, they want to take in their traits, right? And the innocence of a child, when your childhood was anything but innocent, when your childhood was, was anything but wholesome, when your childhood was riddled with wounds, and what do we have in a culture where the family has broken down so horrifically as it has here in America? We have countless, countless adults now whose child, childhoods were, were, were horrific, were filled with wounds, filled with pain, filled with rupture, filled with, with maybe sexual abuse themselves that they experienced. Their own innocent childhood has been robbed, so they feel this lack with a, a, a deep, deep felt pain, and 
The very nature of sexual attraction is we are attracted to that which we lack. The innocent child then becomes a symbol of what I lack, and I want to consume that child. I want to take that innocent child into me as a perverse attempt to reclaim or connect with my own lost innocence, my own lost childhood. Um, this in no way is to justify the behavior. Obviously, that kind of behavior, there's no justification for it, whatever. But I say this to, to help us understand uh, the crisis we are in. This is the crisis we are in. This is the fallout of the breakdown of the family. And from generation to generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. This does not bode well for where we're all headed because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But redemption is real. We, we are beginning to experience as a culture a collective cry for redemption. We are getting t- towards the bottom of the barrel. And as we approach the bottom of the barrel, there is being raised up in, in the human heart a collective cry for redemption. And Catherine, I feel and I hear that cry in your very heart, in the very manner in which you've addressed this question. I hear the cry of your heart for the redemption of the world. And I invite you and I invite all our listeners to feel that cry. Mm. One of my favorite lines in the catechism is when the catechism says that the loud cry that Christ groaned from the cross, that the cry of every human heart and all that we have suffered is contained in that cry of Christ. And we know that that loud cry of Christ on the cross is heard by the Father precisely because three days later he was raised from the dead. We are dying a death in our culture. What is the end result of a culture of death? That would be death. But we know death is not the, the final word. The final word is resurrection. And if we are willing to enter into the loud cry of Christ for the redemption of the world, we can be assured that the Father is going to hear our prayer. Every confrontation with the horror, the abject horror of evil, and that's what sex trafficking is. It is a, it is a confrontation with the abject horror of evil. Every confrontation and encounter with abject evil, with the horror of abject evil, is an opportunity to praise God for what Christ has already borne in his suffering, death, and descent into hell. Uh, that's how I approach evil, as an opportunity to realize, whole, if I may, I mean, this is just what comes to my mind, holy shit, this is what Jesus endured on the cross. This is what he this is the depth of the cross, right? This is this reveals to us ever greater depths of the horror of what Christ endured on the cross. And that can be transformed as we realize that the cry of horror can be transformed into the cry of praise for what God has done for us, and that itself becomes effective intercession for what these children are our suffering. Mm. I think one thing that's um, important is that, Catherine, you saw that movie and you couldn't just go on with your life as normal. Oh, yeah, that was informative. Thank you. And let me think about something else now. There was something that just 
told you you needed to stay with this, needed to learn more, needed to go deeper into what's being portrayed here for the sake of understanding our broken world and broken people. Um, And I don't know what the Lord has uh, in store for you, Catherine, in any particular way, but all of us who become aware of such things are called to be intercessors, um, as Christopher was saying, praying for those children whose lives have been so tragically altered by this reality, so hurt and um, just deeply scarred by their experiences, to pray for them, for their healing, to pray for those who are seeking to prevent these crimes, those who are seeking to um, bring the law to bear and to find those who are responsible to rescue children. There are people working on these things, and they do need our prayer because they are they are confronting this horror all the time. And how do you maintain um, just that place of trust that God is bringing good when it, it can get like just seeming so dark? So they really do need our prayer to be renewed in their strength, to be have more people involved. But there could be also, and I think, although I didn't see the film, I heard from others that they were left with a certain feeling of, I don't know what to do about this kind of question or f- sentiment. And it may be that the filmmakers hope that new things will be done, that that enough people will see this and take new approaches and new action. So it is worth worthy of our efforts, not only to reflect on things, not only to pray, but to take action in this world to protect children to also bring perpetrators to a place of healing. Like, as you were speaking earlier in your response, Christopher, you were talking about the the woundedness of those who are wounding these yes, children, yes. which it, it's not everyone who can enter into that thought of compassion, but those who can need to be praying and seeking ways to help. So I, I do think that there's something, there's like a, a fruitful agitation that we can experience. That's, that, well, that's a that's good phrase, Laura. Sort of a agitation. restlessness to seek, how can I, what can I do? And I, I know that the Lord is bringing good out of this film, and I have, you and I have talked with people who are directly working with this issue, and yes. uh, there are significant efforts being made, but more needs to happen, that's so clear as well. And I, I want to say, Catherine, thank you as a patron for your monthly support of the Theology of the Body Institute. You are doing something right there to make a substantial difference. You know, the, the, this issue will not go away simply by more laws on the books or more law enforcers. Um, it, it's like any issue. You can't legislate. I mean, legislation is essential. But you can't legislate the change of heart, right? Child trafficking will happen so long as there is a demand for it. And there will be a demand for it so long as we don't know how to speak into and invite people into the redemption of their sexuality. 
the redemption of these terribly perverse and distorted sexual desires. And guess what? We are all in need of sexual healing and redemption. The, the purpose and goal of the Theology of the Body Institute is to inject this healing remedy into the bloodstream of the church. So, Catherine, your monthly support of our work uh, does help the cause. And, and may I invite anyone out there, any listener out there, if you are not already a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute, would you please prayerfully consider it? We are in need, I've said this on past podcasts, the Institute is at a critical stage of growth. We, we have requests and demands for this message to go around the world that we cannot fulfill because we are not able to afford to hire more staff, uh, faculty, uh, and, and people to be part of this mission. We have a great need at the Institute to hire um, several new staff people to just meet the demand that we have to get this message out around the world. We, we ask, would you, would you prayerfully consider, if you are not already a patron, would you click that link and become a patron? $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month. That goes a tremendous uh, way in helping us to fulfill our, our mission. So, Catherine, thank you, thank you for being a patron, and I, I hope you are taking advantage of the ongoing formation that we offer our patrons. Our next question is from a listener named Susan. Hello, Susan. I have a question about the story of the fall. I have a priest telling me that Adam was not near Eve when she ate the forbidden fruit, so it was her fault. Oh, geez. <laughs> I hate that language. Did JP2 say anything on this in Theology of the Body? Was Adam also at fault? Yes, JP2 does say uh, something about this, something very, 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 very important. Oh my gosh. I mean, what I'm hearing here, whoever said this is just repeating Adam's mistake, Adam's error when he said, it's the woman you put here with me. It's her fault. This is part of the original sin to pass the blame, right? Um, John Paul II says the original sin is the sin of the couple, because the attack is a direct frontal attack against the man as man and the woman as woman. You know, we talk of Adam's sin, we talk of Eve's sin, but rarely do we talk about the sin of the couple. That's how John Paul II describes it. It's the sin of the couple. And by that he means the original sin itself, uh, Satan's temptation, is a direct attack against male and female identity. And I think the key that gives us access here into the nature of the sin is the Hebrew words for male and female. John Paul II mentions this only in passing in a footnote of the theology of the body. Uh, I'm going to unpack it a little bit more than John Paul II does, but here is the Hebrew word for male and the Hebrew word for female. Male is zakar, Z-A-K-A-R, and the Hebrew word for female is nekevah, N-E-Q-E-B, but pronounced with a V sound, A-H, nekevah. Now, in Hebrew, there's a happy homonym 
that we entirely miss in the English. The happy homonym for zakar in Hebrew, it means to remember. And the happy, happy homonym for nekeva in Hebrew is to open. The mission of the male is to remember divine love to the female. The mission of the female is to open to the gift of divine love, to receive it, conceive it, and bear it forth. The original sin is an attack against Zakar and Nekeva. The sin of the male, if his identity is to remember divine love to the female, the attack against it, his sin, is that he forgets. He forgets divine love. And when the man forgets divine love to the woman, the woman will close. Why does the serpent approach the woman in the garden? And by the way, it's right there that Adam was in her proximity uh, because she turns and gives the fruit to Adam. It's not like she's, the Bible doesn't say she had to go searching for him. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are (laughs) you? Yeah, here's some fruit. Got some fruit for you. It just says she turned and gave some to her husband and he ate it too, which implies he was right there. But he forgot how to love her in this moment of temptation, right? He faulted at his post. His mission is to remember divine love. And many saints, mystics speculate that Adam saw what it would cost to defend his bride in the face of this attack from Leviathan, from the dragon, Right? It's not some little snake uh, whizzling or whizzling. Is that even a word? Wiggling is what I meant to say. Whizzling. What kind of word is that? Not a word. Not a word. Uh, wigg- <laughs> wiggling through the grass. It's not some little garter snake wiggling through the or whizzling through the grass. It's a freaking, pardon me, a freaking huge dragon that's after it. This is like Revelations 12. The dragon is after the woman. And some speculate, mystics and saints speculate, that Adam saw what it would take to defend his bride, to remember divine love. He would have to take the hit himself unto death, right? And this is exactly what the new Adam does. In a garden, the serpent comes and he takes the hit himself to defend his bride and to remember divine love to her. And what does he tell the 12 men gathered around him at the Last Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. That's the essence of masculine identity. And the essence of masculine sin is a kind of forgetting, right? The essence of feminine virtue is to open to divine love. We see this fully in Mary. She is the forever opened one. She is the one, even though she faced all the same temptations as every human being ever faced, she did not close. She remained open, right? Here, woman becomes, as John Paul II says, the model and archetype of the whole human race. Because the purpose of our our humanity, the reason we are all bride before God is because the purpose of our humanity is to open to the gift of divine love. That's why the serpent approaches the woman because she is the symbol of the deepest essence of humanity. She is the open one. The goal of the serpent in the original sin is to get the whole of humanity to close to divine love. Mary remains open. What enables her to remain open? What does she say in her Magnificat? He has remembered his mercy, his love 
for his people. That faith in that remembrance of divine love is what enabled her to stay open. This passing of blame, whether it's from the man to the woman, it's your fault, or the woman to the man, it's Adam's sin, it's your fault. It's BS. It's a crock. It's part of the original sin that we blame somebody else. Uh, Part of our salvation is that we come to terms with our own role, whether as male or female, in the whole mess that we are in. Men, are we remembering divine love? We can't give it if we're not first open, right? We have to... Jesus himself says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. We have to open. Jesus is eternally open to the love of the Father. That's what enabled him to remember that love. Men, are we opening ourselves to the love of Jesus to then share it with with others? Uh, That's what it means to be a man. My dear sisters, are you learning in your life of prayer to remain open, open, open to the love of God, even when it takes you as it took Mary to the foot of the cross, right? What what was the temptation like for Mary at the foot of the cross to close when she saw the horror of what was being inflicted on Christ the bridegroom, on her own flesh and blood? And yet she remained, even at the foot of the cross, open. This is the path. This is the journey to the restoration of masculinity and femininity, It's not the sin just of the man. It's not the sin just of the woman. It's the sin of the couple. And it's the redemption of the couple. It's always the male and the female together. It is absolutely critical that there is a male on the cross and a female at the foot of the cross. It's absolutely critical that the first miracle of our redemption happens at a wedding. And it's absolutely critical that the new Adam and the new Eve are at that wedding. Nuptials, nuptials, nuptials. The mystery of maleness, of femaleness, of masculinity and femininity. Uh, this is a mystery that is, is critical, John Paul II says, both, both in understanding creation and even more so in understanding the mystery of our redemption. I just want to share one quick thought um, from because Susan asked about what JP2 says on this in Theology of the Body. And um, as you're sharing about just these incredible parallels, the closing and of Eve, the forgetting of Adam, the opening of Mary, the remembering of Christ, mm. the opposite responses to this very same evil um, is really beautiful powerful, rich stuff. I remember something that just struck me in Theology of the Body I just want to share with Susan. When we're looking at what was the dynamic of that initial exchange between Eve and yes. the um, tempter, is that uh, And Satan, what was the tempter doing in the grass? Do you remember that, lover? <laughs> whistling at <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, he wasn't. That's the point. He was bigger and scarier than a whizzler. <laughs> right, exactly. Anyway, uh, just that JP2 points out, and I think it's very good to reflect on, that what his strategy was to cast doubt on God's goodness. Mm-hmm. That was his whole strategy. It was very sneaky. But he first says a totally false accusation. Did God say you're not to eat from the trees of the garden 
I mean, that was such an exaggeration. Well, Eve, I think, is in a little confusion, taken aback, and then says, no, we can eat just not of one tree or we'll die. And then, then he goes on to say, surely you won't die. And God knows it. So who's he making God out to be but someone who's not at all trustworthy? And that, I think, is the deep thing Mm -hmm. that we need to look at in our own hearts. Have we, well, we all have some place in our hearts where we question, can I really trust God? That's what Satan wants us to question. And that's the, the place where we can just close up to protect ourselves. Mm. And that's what Eve did that caused her to fall. Mm. But that's what the couple did. They both doubted that they could trust the Lord's goodness yes. together. Yes. How do we know we can trust the Lord's goodness, God's goodness, even when all hell is breaking loose and descending upon us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? All hell descended upon Jesus, and Jesus descended into all hell. And he still trusted the Father, still trusted in the Father's goodness. How do we know that that trust was not in vain? Because on the third day, he was raised in glory. And this is all, you know, fine and good theology. Thanks, Christopher, great theological ideas. But what does this mean practically day to day in my life? I I feel led... Wendy, even right now, just to to enact these truths, and uh, sincerely, Wendy, I I know I know I have forgotten in a thousand different ways God's love to you. You've been such an intimate part of my life for so long, and we live our lives together day in and day out as husband and wife, and you know me thoroughly. Uh, you know my gifts, you know my, my, my virtues, and you know my faults, weaknesses, and vices. And you benefit from my gifts, and you suffer from my vices. It's just part of being a husband and a wife. And, and I know that my forgetting has been a source of great suffering to you and caused you to close. And I, I, I want to just enact what I'm teaching and, and say, Wendy, I, I please, please forgive me for the ways I have forgotten. Mm. Uh, I, I, and I ask you, Lord, please give me the grace to remember more faithfully my mission as a man and to live it so that Wendy can be more, ever more peacefully open to me and to you, Jesus. Please, mm. Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, you know my failings to be truly open in my deepest being to your love and open, fully open to my husband. I ask you, Lord, to have mercy on me and help me, heal me, help me to love him as he's meant to be loved. Amen. Amen. Our next question is from Rich. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. My name is Rich, and my wife, Ruth, and I will celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary next year. Congratulations, Rich and Ruth. Congratulations. I didn't have an S on the end of there. Your podcast and the teaching of JP2 became part of our marriage 
only in the past few years, but has changed our lives awesome. and our marital embrace forever. Whoop, 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 whoop. Living our sacrament hasn't always been easy, but we have been blessed. Here's the challenge we're facing. My wife has been experiencing near constant bleeding in the mm. past 12 months. Mm, mm. It leaves her sapped of energy and has other effects on her mentally and emotionally. Her doctor is recommending a hysterectomy. What is the church's position on this? Is it okay to get a hysterectomy? Bless you, Rich. Bless you, brother. I can only imagine the, the real difficulties that this poses in your marriage and in your marital intimacies. Um, bless, 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 bless. Uh, immediately as I heard you, Wendy, reading this question, I saw the woman in the Gospels who also was bleeding for so long and had no recourse, and she went to doctors, and uh, she reached out in faith to touch Jesus. She reached out in faith to touch Jesus. What does that mean for you, Rich, and for your wife, Ruth? She reached out in faith to touch Jesus. I'll just hold that out first. Uh, I invite you to, I don't claim to know what that means for you. I don't, I, I honestly don't, but I did feel le led to just put that out and invite you to pray into that as a couple, uh, what that particular story might mean for you guys. And in answer to your question, no, the church does not say that it would be wrong to have a hysterectomy when there is a diseased uterus. And it, I'm not a medical professional. I don't know the status of your wife's uterus. I don't know if there would be less invasive ways of seeking healing. If there are less invasive ways, ways of, of finding healing, then that should be pursued. Um, a hysterectomy should be a kind of last resort uh, as uh, a means of curing a diseased situation, but it's not inherently wrong. There are certainly situations like cancer of the uterus where the removal of the uterus is justified. Uh, there will be obviously no possibility of new life, um, but so long as that is not willed, uh, then there's no moral fault, right? The, the, the sterilization that would then happen would not be directly willed. It would be the side effect, the unintended consequence of a medically necessary procedure. Now, I would recommend strongly that you find a pro-life doctor, uh, a Catholic doctor preferably, um, and even more preferably a, a doctor who's been trained in what's called naprotechnology. If you just Google Catholic Doctors Napro Technology, N-A-P-R-O, um, if there's one in your area that you'll probably be able to find one readily, uh, fairly readily. Uh, why do I say those kind of doctors? Because they, they have uh, shown themselves to be faithful to church, the church's teaching, and that, not that they would say anything contrary to what I'm saying, but they would be more readily willing to seek out and find less invasive procedures. Whereas kind of secular medicine at large is rather quick to say, oh, let's just take out your uterus. Uh, Catholic doctors would be less inclined to remove the uterus, but not, uh, they wouldn't prohibit that or be, be against it if that was the last resort, it was medically necessary. But you'll, you'll find doctors who are more inclined to seek less invasive means 
if they are Catholic and if they are trained as um, NAPRO technology kind of doctors. Wendy, do you want to add anything to that? All I want to add is just that I appreciate that Rich and Ruth are even asking the question, that it's so natural in the way our culture works just to kind of do what the doctor recommends um, without really pausing to think about it. And I think that that's just a sign of a true faith and a sense of God's love for Ruth's womb. You know, he he made it, he loves it. Mm. And um, that, just that sense of wanting to honor him in how you're uh, proceeding in this difficult circumstances is inspiring. And um, I want to pray that the Lord will shine a light on the next step in your path. Just that what we shared with you today would be a help and that he would bring helpful people into your lives in order to really get the care that is most needed, most helpful, and quickly. When you said that, Wendy, that the Lord loves Ruth's womb, I had a quick flash, uh, a little sense, a little glimmer of Ruth's glorified womb, glorified body as a woman in heaven in the resurrection. And even if, say, you go down the path and, and it is medically necessary to have a hysterectomy, Remember what Jesus says, in the resurrection, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap. And guess what? Those who have had a hysterectomy, their wombs will be restored and they will shine with glory. And somehow, I don't know how, I don't know how it's going to work, but every woman will come in some way to share in the dignity of Mary and the holiness of Mary's womb in generating Christ. What we are aiming for, what our destiny holds for us, is that somehow we will participate in the eternal generation of the Son within the Trinity, because that's what the Trinitarian life is, and that's what our destiny is, to participate in the life of the Trinity. Somehow, I don't know how, but uh, beyond what I have seen here, has heard, or has even dawned on us, Ruth, in the resurrection of the body, your womb will shine with glory in somehow mysteriously participating in the eternal generation of Jesus himself. Glory be to God. Wow. And I guess that brings us to uh, the end of this episode. Man, that was, that was jam-packed. Wendy, I'm always um, impressed with the questions that you choose. Uh, you, you are the one who goes through all of the questions and says we're going to answer that one today. So thank you for the questions you chose. And thank you for our questioners who send your questions in. If you're a patron, don't forget you can send in a question through your patron website and you get priority. You'll be um, have a better chance that we will answer your question on the podcast. If you were blessed by anything that you heard today and you know someone who could also be blessed, would you please share this episode with someone? If you were blessed and you want to leave a comment about the podcast, that would be great too. I only recently learned, remember that? That <laughs> there are people comments. have been leaving comments for years. This shows what I know. And of course, we always end our podcast with an invitation for you to know it deep in your bones that you, because you're made in the image of God, because you are chosen by eternal love, and that love is a gift, that means you are a gift 
become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.